Hey, I want to look in the camera. I want to welcome every single person that is tuning in, our Global X fam. And maybe if you're watching this on YouTube in the year 2025, we're glad to have you streaming to you. And uh, man, I'm, I'm so excited, guys. I cannot tell you how much time I've been waiting for this moment and this series. I am pumped. I hope you are. I don't know if you're going to get a little nervous as we're going to talk about some really, really deep questions, but we're going to have a lot of fun over the next several weeks. Now, some of you are wondering, where did this idea of a series called uh, Origins come from? Where, where did it come from? Honestly, it came from you guys. If I can just be honest, that's where it came from. Something we started doing a couple years ago was we started to recognize that at Christmas time, which, by the way, is coming up really soon, you better get your Christmas presents ordered early. Okay, so... <laughs> Christmas time, we noticed that we would have more than double our normal, regular, weekly attendance would show up for Christmas experiences. And so we realized that was the prime opportunity for us to engage with our community. So we actually started doing a survey every year where we just started asking some questions. And one of those questions is, what would you like to hear us talk about? And one of the number one questions, the answers we got back a couple years ago was that people wanted to know, because this is the conversation happening in our world, wanted to know about faith and science. How do, we, how do we kind of work out faith and science when they seem to be so opposite today? And so I got inspired by that because I kind of happened to like science a little bit. And I set out to do this series about 20 months ago. And uh, I've never really put a series so far out there, but I have been spending more time than you could ever imagine just diving deep into it. Let me first say, as we're going to talk about some science stuff over the next several weeks, let me say this. I am not a scientist, okay? I want to just claim that up front. I am not an expert in science, okay? I'm an enthusiast. I'm someone who loves it. And I love the conversation of faith and science. And so I said, let's lean into this conversation. By the way, this is also a really important conversation that the community of faith needs to be having. This is something that we need to be talking about. And so we're going to do it. And it's going to be a little bit different. But we're going to wrestle with some hard questions. Here's what I know is life is full of hard questions. I know you know that. Like from the time you're young, you know, you have these big, huge questions. We're, we're very inquisitive. We have these huge questions. In fact, if you're not sure of that, it's probably because you're not a parent. If you're a parent, then you know what it's like to have a lot of questions thrown at you. Right, moms and dads? Like, I remember I, my, my oldest daughter, Lauren, when she was young, she would ask me these questions that I was just not prepared to answer. Like, I, I remember even simple ones. I remember one time she asked me, Dad, why is the sky blue? I don't know. God made it blue, and he likes blue. I don't, like, there's an answer for that. I just wasn't prepared to answer it, you know, or when you're putting your kid to sleep, and they're saying, why do I have to sleep, Dad? Because you need to go to bed, but really there's a scientific answer for it, right? Um, you know, or maybe probably you've gotten harder questions. Like, I know moms and dads probably get this one. How in the world does Santa deliver toys to every single boy and girl in one night? That's a great question, right, parents? And some of you kind of, when you're idealistic, meaning you're not a parent, and you've got like all these thoughts about what you're going to be like when you're a mom or a dad, and you're like, I will never lie to my child. I will always give it to them straight. Yeah, I bet. Just wait until you have little kids asking you really hard questions. I remember when my oldest daughter, Lauren, asked me one of the hardest origin questions. You know, where do things come from? 
she was probably around five years old, I think maybe because my wife might have been pregnant with our second daughter. And I remember she came to me one day and she said, Daddy, where do babies come from? So for all you idealistic parents who are like, I will never, I'm just going to tell my kids the cold hard facts. Yeah, I bet. I bet you're going to get out your book and start pointing out reproductive organs and all that good stuff. I bet. And, uh, and so, so, you know, she asked me this question, and what do you do? She's like five years old. You give her a five-year-old answer. I said, um, well, they grow in mommy's bellies. And, um, you know, I thought that would be good enough, but it wasn't. And you could see the wheels spinning, you know, when they're like kind of just trying to figure all that out. And she asked me another question. She said, well, how did they get in mommy's belly? And I said, well, God put them there, right? That's the appropriate answer for a five-year-old. God put them there. Apparently, that wasn't good enough. She says, well, how did God put them there? Uh, you know, and I'm like, well, honey, you see, I love your mommy a lot. And I didn't do that. You know what I mean? I was so frustrated. I just, finally, I'm like, just go ask your mother. I don't know what to tell you at this point, right? Because we all know that there's these, like, really deep, you know, origin, these questions about life that we have. And here's the thing. When we're little, we're okay with simple answers. You know, you say, well, God made it all. okay. You know, and that's okay to a five-year-old. That might work with an eight-year-old. But as they get older and as they learn more and as information abounds and advances, all of a sudden simple answers aren't good enough anymore, right? And as we've been living in an era where, where scientific information things have just advanced, here's what I would say. Our need for better answers about God and about faith are real. They're very real. In fact, this is one of the problems that we see today is that there are many, many who are young and they're teenagers and they're 20-year-olds that are walking away from faith because the simple answers that they were given when they were little don't line up with reality. You said God would do this. He didn't. And so I, I think there are a lot of people today that are they're not walking away faith because they want to. They're walking away because they don't know how to reconcile it. And, and they've got people that are sitting in these, these higher education experiences that are telling them one thing, and they're not hearing anything else from the faith community. And so I felt it was really important that we actually take a few weeks and we dive into these really hard questions and we seek real answers. Because the truth is, today, it feels like there is this massive gulf between faith and science. I don't know if you feel that. In fact, we live in such a, a divided world, a polarized world, that it feels like not only politically, but when it comes to the world of faith and the world of science, it feels like they're opposite camps. You ever feel that? It feels like if you're a person of science, then you're going to say, you are just ignorant and you're just blindly trusting something here with faith. And then if you've got somebody who's in the faith camp, you know, they're sitting there going, I reject your evidence and what you're saying because it doesn't line up with what I believe. And so you've got faith and science that seem to be enemies today. Can I tell you, it wasn't always like that in culture. In fact, you were to trace back in history, go back to prior to, the, say, the 15th century. Um, faith tended to really inform the worldview. The worldview that almost everybody had was informed by faith. 
okay, what they believed about God and religion, that, that's what happened. Then as we get into the 15th century, we get into the 16th century and the 17th century, what happens is we experience something called the scientific re- revolution. The 1500s and the 1600s, and we got scientists who are now beginning to create practices for learning things, discovering things about our world. In fact, you got people like Francis Bacon, who's kind of the father of, of science, or so to speak, right? He came up with really the scientific method. And so when that happened, you got all these scientists who are doing all of these tests and they're coming up with they're coming up with answers. Sometimes they didn't line up with what everybody was holding as truth that they'd always known, and it created an issue. In fact, here's a real simple example. Maybe you've heard of this one. Um, Have you ever heard of Copernicus, right? Let's go back in science a little bit, right? Copernicus lived in the 1500s. Copernicus was somebody, that astronomer who did experiments, and he came up with this crazy off-the-wall theory, okay? Crazy theory that the sun was at the center of the universe, Okay, now at this time, they didn't know about galaxies, and they didn't know about Andromeda, and they didn't know about all these far distant, they, everything they could see, they just thought this was our universe. What was believed up to that point was that the earth was the center of the universe. Now, why would we think the earth is the center of the universe? I'll tell you one reason why. Because people interpreted the Bible to believe that. They did. Well, look at Genesis 1. God created the heavens and the earth, and he formed the earth into dry ground. And there made the earth, and then he, on day four, he put the sun and the moon and the stars in the sky. So obviously, the earth is the center of the universe. This is, and it was believed that Copernicus, who would release his book called Revolutions, right on his deathbed. Most believe he did it on his deathbed because he knew that if he released this beforehand, he would invoke the wrath of the church, the Roman Catholic Church, which was massively in power at the time. And so he kind of died shortly after, and most people just kind of swept it under the rug. Then comes along a little bit later, late 1500s, early 1600s, a scientist named Galileo. Galileo is an astronomer who, doing his own observations, came to the same conclusion as Copernicus, right? Now, Galileo knew, and so he actually wrote a, a book called Dialogues. There's more to it than that, but he kind of talked about this helocentric view and kind of a kind of almost a fictional conversation, so he kind of made it real vague. I, can't, I don't know how, you know, and he released it, and immediately he, he received just wrath from the Pope and from the Roman Catholic Church. It was, it was so bad that they had something called the Roman Inquisition, okay? And the Roman Inquisition met and, and basically voted like seven to ten that he had violated this and that they, he was going against, um, against Scripture, and so he was called to a, um, he was called to trial. He was told, go to Rome, you're going to trial. And he tried to avoid it, and they were like, nope, we're, we're going to come get you if you do. And so he goes to trial. Eight months he spent in trial, that they, they found him guilty, violating what we know to be true based on the scriptures. So I did, okay? Now, they gave him an opportunity he could recant, and he did. He was like, oh, I was mistaken. I was confused when I did it. I totally, that's what he did. And and they kind of let him do that. And because of that, he wasn't executed. Spent a little time in prison, but because of that philosophy. You know, it wouldn't be until hundreds of years later that the church, at the time, the Catholic Church, would actually turn around and accept that what they were saying was true. 
Why? Because of the way they interpreted their scriptures. Okay? So these are, the, these are the things that happened, okay, and that have created this disparity between faith and science. And then as you travel hundreds of years, they keep going. Science continues to grow. You've got the age of reason, the age of enlightenment, the scientific revolution. You've got technology abounding, and all of these different disciplines and practices are coming to light. And what's happening is you've got faith and science seem to be getting further and further apart. My question is this, but do they really have to be? That's what I'm asking. And so here's, here's what I, I want to say for the next few weeks. Some of the things that I'm going to say quite possibly are going to challenge, if not threaten, some of the things that you have held dear and believed your entire life. I'm just going to say that right now. Some of the things that we're going to talk about, going to step on your toes just a little bit if you would let me on some of the things that you're like, oh, no, this is what I believe. Here's what I, I want us to recognize is that there are things, all of us, that we believe, okay, that have been given to us that many of us never even went and explored for ourselves. There are a lot of things that we have held to be true because it was just told to us by someone we trusted, nothing wrong with that, and it might have come from a professor, and it might have come from a pastor. What I'm gonna ask is through this series and this conversation, would you have an open mind and heart? Open your mind and your heart to wrestle with some things, maybe some things you always held as traditional views that you have just held. Now, I'm saying that both if from a faith perspective as well as from a scientific perspective. Some things that maybe you've held on, they're orthodoxy, you don't touch them, okay? I'm just gonna challenge a little bit. Now, some of you are a little concerned right now. You're a little nervous. It's okay, take, take a deep breath. We're gonna be okay, all right? Because what I've found is that sometimes it's, it's not what we hold that is the problem. It's what we need to let go of that we're holding that might be the problem, okay? That gets in the way. So we're gonna talk about how faith and science can intersect, and I believe can dwell together in harmony. I'm going to show you that, okay? Now, let me show you what we're going to do for the next several weeks, all right? We're going to talk about some subjects that I'm just going to say it right now. Some of you are like, I got out of school. I did not want to go back to school. I'm going to challenge you to show up anyways, okay? Some of the things we're going to talk about are going to be really complex. I'm going to do my best to simplify as I am in the process of learning to simplify. Okay, I'm going to do my best. Again, I want to say I'm not an expert. If you are an expert in one of these fields and I get something wrong, feel free to tell me, not during it, but afterwards. I'm open to that. I will correct anything. I'll post a retraction. Okay, I, I promise you, I am not an expert. Okay, but I, I have been for the last almost two years just diving deeply into this because it's a passion of mine, and I hope it's a conversation that I think actually is really important for all of us to have, okay? So here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want to encourage you to take notes because I think there's going to be a lot here where maybe you're going to want to kind of dive into this and have conversations. Now, to help you do that, if you're here in the room, you might have picked up a field guide okay, that we had and we were handing out to people on the way in. It's just a little guide, a little booklet that you can kind of follow along. We've got space in there where you can take some notes for each week of the series. And so just a little tool to help you out, this field guide, okay, that we have. You can also download this if you're, if you're watching this online. Uh, let me also talk about the back of it. On the back of it is a resource list that has several books 
All of these are books I have read. This is not the exhaustive list of the books that I have read in the last 20 months because I left some of them off there because some of you would freak out if I put them on. So I'm just going to say that. But this is a list of books that I would recommend that if you want to dive deeper into any of this, feel free to do so and kind of develop your own thoughts on this stuff. I'm okay with that. By the way, we even, we even bought a few just a couple ones that we really recommend for people getting started that we have out at the shop, just three of them. So we've got a few different ones. If you go, I'd like to get my hands on one today. It would be a great place for you to start. Even today, this book by Timothy Keller called The Reason for God might be a great place to start. Okay? So you've got books. Now, here's what I know. As I seek to help answer some questions, here's what I know. You're probably going to have more questions. In fact, my questions might create even more questions for you. Here's a way for you to engage with us. You can text ORIGINS to 94000, and it will create a conversation on your phone where you can submit questions. So I want to encourage you, feel free to do that today. Do that tomorrow. Okay, I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to do with all the questions. If you get questions about, hey, as we talk, and some of you are that kind of student that likes to work ahead, <laughs> okay, if you're that kind of person, and you have questions about it, feel free to submit them. I might even answer some of them in our upcoming weeks, working on a couple other ideas and ways that I might try to kind of dive in. Because, listen, I only have a few minutes to talk about some really, really big subjects. And, oh, by the way, can I just say, I know that I am not going to be able to say something in 45 minutes that is going to finally put to, de- to put to bed something that's been debated for thousands of years. I do not even think that's even possible, okay? I am not that self-absorbed, trust me. But, but what I am saying is that there is more to these conversations. So if you have questions, we'd love to engage with them. So let's talk about where we're going to go for the next few weeks. Let's talk about next week. Next week might be my favorite week of the entire series. I might say that every week. But next week, we're going to talk about cosmology, right? The cosmos. This question, where did the universe come from? It's a really deep philosophical question, but it's also a very scientific one, okay? So that's week two. Week three is going to be on biology. I got any people here that like biology? Any science nerds? Any medical nerds? Okay. We're going to ask this question. Where do we come from? Humans. Where do we come from? Okay, you can probably see where that one's going to go. It's going to be a lot of fun. Week four, we're going to talk about Christology. What does that mean? Okay, where did Jesus come from? Obviously, if you're here, if you're engaging, part of a Christian uh, faith. And so we're going to ask some really hard questions, okay, about Jesus. And that's week four. Week five is what I call bibliography or bibliology, which we're going to ask, where did the Bible come from? There's a lot of questions and skeptics that really want to know about the Bible and how can we trust it and there's contradictions it seems and there's all these different things. So listen, this series is going to be a little bit different than what you're used to because we're actually going to start before the Bible, before we make our way toward it, okay? And so that's how we're getting started. Now today, as we kick this off, we're going to start with a really, really deep, very deep conversation. We're going to start at the top. With theology, okay? Theology. Our question today is this. Where did God come from? Let's just talk about this. Now, when I say where did God come from, obviously none of us can answer that particular question. What I'm really saying is this. How can we know that God exists? How can we know, can we know, that there is a super 
natural, intelligent being, force, agent, mind, all these things that we might think about when we think about the term God that may exist outside of our known world. Now let me preface this before we dive into this question. When I say, where does God come from, I need you to understand, I am not talking about any particular God. Okay? I'm not talking about the Christian God, and I'm not talking about Jesus. I'm not talking about Jewish God. I'm not talking about Yahweh. I'm not talking about the Islamic God, Allah. I'm not talking about Brahmin. I'm not talking about chaos, mythology. I'm not talking about any particular God. I'm talking about the concept of a being, a supernatural, not natural being. That's what I'm talking about today. Okay, I want to make that clear because I'm not talking about a personal or loving God. Why does that matter? Because can I just say that, that there are a lot of people that maybe even some of you that you walked away from believing in God because of the suffering in the world, because of the evil in the world. That's a valid conversation. Be glad to have it. That's not what I'm talking about today. I'm not even going to the thought that there is a loving or good God. I just want to back up and say, can we know if God exists? Now, if you come from a scientific background, this is really hard. Let me just say that. Because there's a natural struggle if you have a scientific mind where you're looking for evidence that leads to proof to believe something. Okay? And the struggle that we might have is that there just doesn't seem to be irrefutable proof in the existence of God. Some of you might classify yourself as an agnostic. I'm not saying that maybe there isn't a God, but there's no proof of a God. There's not enough evidence, is what some would say. So therefore, I can't go there. All right? I understand that. Now, I want to just approach this if you are someone who comes from a science background. And let's just approach this scientifically for just a moment. I believe... This is me personally. That science will always struggle to give you the proof that you're looking for when it comes to God. Now, let me tell you why I believe that. I don't believe that just because of my own thoughts. I believe that because of how scientists define science. Okay? Let let me start with a definition today that I got from uh, the Science Council. Now, this is a definition that scientists, we're not talking about religious people, scientists have used to define their science. Here's what they define it as. Science is the pursuit and application of knowledge and understanding of the natural and social world following a systemic methodology based on evidence. So again, let me just kind of recap. Science is when you you go after, you're trying to get the application of knowledge. We don't just want knowledge, we want to know how to apply it. Okay, the understanding of our natural and social world. So that's just not the physical world, but that includes social sciences. Psychology, anthropology, sociology, okay, those things that don't just deal with the physical but the social, all right? World, how? Following a systematic methodology based on evidence, okay? Some would understand that, the the scientific method, using our senses, using the things that we have, the tools available to us in the natural world and the evidence to come up with knowledge. Now, I would argue that when... Your entire field of study is about studying the natural and social world. You will always have a challenge in trying to, using those scientific methods, determine if there is a God outside of the natural world. This is a big question, I understand. Some would say 
that the reason why we have a natural world is because something caused that natural world to come into be. And so the question is, could science prove that there is a God? I would argue no. In fact, I would say it this way, that science will never be able to prove or disprove the existence of God according to its definition. Okay, in other words, science alone by itself is not enough to prove God exists or to disprove God exists. There are a lot of scientists who will tell you, we've proven God does not exist. I disagree. I completely disagree. Because of the very nature of science itself. In other words, it's kind of like, it might be the wrong tool. If I said, here, here's an algebraic equation. I know, we hate math. I'm with you. We hate, here's an algebraic equation. I want you to solve this using grammar. You're going to look at me cross-eyed because it's the wrong tool. And what I'm saying is all of our sciences, as wonderful as they are, and I love science, I mean everything from physical sciences like geology and geography and archaeology and physics, okay, all of these things, not to mention also social sciences, all are going to fall short in trying to prove. And so if you're somebody who says, I would believe if you could prove it to me. I'm just telling you that you live in a space that does not exist. It doesn't exist. I can't. No one can. I can't prove it to you, but I also can't disprove it to you using science. A better answer might be this. Is God probable or improbable? How about this? Is God, the existence of God, the best explanation for what we have? Or is there another explanation? Now, I do believe science can help. That's what I'm going to show you. I do believe science can help. Let me me just propose a a thought. Let's just say you leave, you get done here, and you drive home. And as you pull up home, you notice something looks wrong with your front door. You go around to the front door. When you get there, you see that the door's been busted open. You see the door jams kind of crooked, and something's not right. So what do you do? You get on your phone, you call 911. Someone broke into my house, I think. I don't know, but something happened. So the police come out. When the police come out, they're going to bring out some detectives maybe, right? And they're going to get their CSI team, crime scene investigators, and they're going to come out. And what are they going to do with the crime scene? They're going to get out their tools that they have, and they're going to start dusting the door frame, looking for what? Prints. We're going to try to find a fingerprint. We're going to look around and go, oh, look. at the. And you walk into the house, and I want you just to picture this. As you walk in there with the investigators, everything is a mess. I mean, everything is like tossed and thrown and strewn everywhere. And you're like, it wasn't like that when I left. Now, some of you will go home and it'll look like that because that's how you left it. But I just want you to picture with me that that your house was clean. And all of a sudden, the TV's missing and stuff is broken and the lamp's knocked over and shattered. And you're like, oh, gosh, and flour and everything. out of The cover's just thrown everywhere. And, and then the, the investigators get in there and they, they start looking and they, they, they see a partial print in the flour and they try to cast it. And they do all. What are they doing? They're, they're trying to find clues. Clues. And you can use scientific method and all these things to, to come up with clues. And imagine the investigator, when they get done, they, they come to you and they say, hey, after our incredibly thorough investigation, we have come to the conclusion that someone broke into your house. <laughs> Thank you, Sherlock. I appreciate that. Can you tell me who? No, I can't. I've got some clues, 
that leads me to believe that pretty confidently, but I can't tell you for certain who it was, how many people for sure, or if they were aliens. I don't know that, but I do have enough clues to say someone broke into your house. That's the way it is a little bit when it comes to questions like this. We want science to give us hard answers. And science by itself cannot give you hard answers about something outside of its realm. Okay, are you following me? So are you ready to dive into some clues on this question today? Already? Did I lose any of you already? No, I hope not. Okay, I want to give you five clues. Five clues that I believe point to the existence of God. Okay? The first clue is this, all right? The universe exists. I know some of you are like writing it down. You're going, why am I writing this down? The universe exists. I'm glad we have a universe. I really am. I'm glad that there's matter. I'm glad that I'm here. I'm glad that we're even asking this question, right? I know this seems kind of obvious. It's almost like you're insulting my intelligence. I get all that, okay? But I do believe that you got to start with the fact that there is something. Something exists. You exist. Pinch yourself. I mean, something does exist. Matter does exist. There's not nothing. There's something. I know this seems kind of like elementary, but... But Greek philosophers such as Aristotle, okay, these are people that would think about these kind of things, actually said this, that the very existence of a universe demands an explanation. Because something exists, there must be some reason something exists. Something had to cause something to exist. And so it really set philosophers and people on this, okay, how do we know? Why, why do we exist? Is there something, someone out there that caused this to exist? Now, over the centuries, there's been a variety of different philosophers, theologians, other people that have kind of sought to try to answer this question in a way that makes sense. Um, In fact, I want to share um, a cosmological argument. It's kind of an older one, but I think we'll see if you come next week that it might actually have some validity. It's kind of poo-pooed by scientists today. But I actually think that it's kind of where people start with this. Now, um, it's called Kalam's Cosmological Argument. Okay? And we're going to look at it in a second. Kalam's Cosmological Argument. All right? Now, Kalam is a, uh, it's like a, a writing, a theological writing by, um, by Muslims in around the seventh, uh, 8th century, 700s. Okay? And this was their way of kind of rationalizing and talking about uh, this basic argument about the universe. Here's, here's what I said. Three statements. Go ahead and put them up. Whatever begins to exist must have a cause. Now, we can all kind of tell already from life that we live in a world where there's cause and effect, right? You do something. If I take this and I drop it, what's going to happen? It's going to fall. I'm not going to drop it, but it's going to fall, right? Because there, we live in a world where there's cause and in effect. Whatever begins to exist must have a cause, You had a baby. The baby came to exist. There was a reason that baby. Okay. Second one. The universe began to exist. Now, that's debated. But we do know this. There is a universe. Okay? Right? Third one. Therefore, the universe must have had a cause of its existence. Now, this is what's called a basic syllogism. Okay? Some of you that studied this stuff. Which basically says that if premise A and premise B are true... Then premise C has to be true. It's basic. This is, you know, okay. Now, let me just say, 
that there are some of you, probably, and there are those that will say, yeah, but I would argue this is not a valid premise. If one of these is not valid, then this is not valid. That's, that's fine. That's a great argument. This is just a base to start with, okay? Now, and I will say that there are people like Stephen Hawking, great astrophysicist, theoretical physicist, who passed away in 2018. Um, he was somebody that believed something could come from nothing. So you have to believe certain things to really be able to grasp this. But this is a place to start. Now, next week, we're going to dive deeper into cosmology, way deeper than any of you ever wanted to go. But I do think it will begin to help us when we think about things like this. All right? Clue number two. Clue number two is this. Rationality exists within the universe. Not only do we have a universe, but let's also notice something. There is some rationality to the universe that we have. In other words, I'll say it this way. There seems to be a, an apparent order in our universe. Like, when you think about if our universe came to be, we don't know how it came to be, let's just say, and it came to be because random cosmological event, we don't know how it got caused, but there is something. Let's just say this, okay? You would think that if it's all random, that what you would get in that universe is random. Because rarely, if ever, have I seen order come out of something random, all right? For example, parents, you know this if you have a teenager, when have you ever walked into their bedroom and it was perfectly put together, all their clothes folded and put away, and you walked in and went, we got lucky. It worked. It just, this time walking in, it, it happened to be in order. You would never say that. If you're a parent, you walk in, you would say, what's wrong with my child? Okay? Because whenever we see order... We think intentionality. We think purpose. We think there is order. There's order. The stars that hang in the sky, and they're not all colliding into each other, causing cosmological um, um, explosions 24-7, and the, and the fact that maybe there, that our earth is perfectly distanced from the sun to sustain life. Another crazy, crazy thing. And I know, I know what some of you are thinking. Oh, I know about the law of gravitational force. I know you do. Just wait till next week, Okay. But when we look at our world, we see that there's some order. There's order with life. You think about the cyclical nature of, of life on earth. You think about how we have plants that produce oxygen that mammals need to survive that then through their systems produce carbon dioxide so that the plant life can survive. I mean, think about it. There's such order. Now, one of the things that we, we call these things, we don't know how they got there but we call them laws. Laws of the universe, laws of nature, laws of physics, okay? There's these basic laws that no one can even say how those laws got programmed. But what we know is that without these laws, or sometimes they're called constants, science does not exist. Let me go further than that. It's not just that science does not exist. You do not exist. You do not exist without them. There's a kind of a well-known uh, scientist named Francis Collins. I don't know if you ever heard of him, but he was very well-known for something pretty significant in the last 20, 30 years. Uh, Francis Collin, Collins was someone who grew up in a secular home. Uh, he became a devout atheist for a good portion of his life. 
until he ended up believing in God and then actually becoming a Christian. Now, Francis Collins wrote a book called The Language of God, and here's what's interesting. Um, He was the scientist chosen to spearhead, to lead, for representing the United States, the Human Genome Project. Okay, we actually went in and to kind of map out the genetics in us, okay? And I want you to, to hear something that he said about the rationality of our universe in his book, The Language of God. He said this, when you look from the perspective of a scientist, and that's what he is, at the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming. Go on, it says, There are 15 constants, the gravitational constant, various constants about the strong and weak nuclear force, etc., that have precise values. He said, if any one of those constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases by one part in a million million, the universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Okay, then he said this. Matter would not have been able to coalesce There would have been no galaxies, stars, planets, or people. Francis Collins, what is he saying? He's saying if we do not have these laws, this order, this rationality, nothing exists. Nothing exists. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. It's not just that there's like one constant. Here's the crazy about probability, right? There are several constants that are all exactly necessary to be tuned exactly We're talking fractions of, in order for our universe and for us to exist. Now, Stephen Hawking, as I mentioned earlier, um, he was someone who did not believe in God until he died in 2018. He's an atheist. Brilliant, brilliant uh, theoretical physicist. In other words, he's dealing in realm that doesn't really exist, okay? Um, But I want you to hear something that he said in A Brief History of Time, one of his books. He said, the remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers, we're talking about these constants, these numbers, seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. I can't explain it, but for whatever reason, it just seems like they've tweaked just enough. Now again, some of you go, that's not enough proof for me. This isn't proof. This is a clue. Take that clue. Just put it in your back pocket. This is one of those clues. Let's go on to the third clue. Third clue is this. Life exists in the universe. The universe exists. There's rationality in the universe. Oh, and by the way, there's life. Life exists in the universe. It's one thing to have inorganic matter. It's a completely different thing to have organic matter. And one of the challenges that atheistic approach or materialistic approach to life and worldview is, is trying to answer the origin of life question. That's a really hard question. And there are a lot of really brilliant scientists who are trying desperately to figure out a method to create the right environments where maybe life could emerge. Because the only thing you really have, if you don't have any belief in a creator, a designer, a God, is that it must happen by chance randomly. Let's just say there is a universe. But now that universe has to produce not only the environment for life, but has to produce life itself. Okay, this is a huge challenge. And obviously this is where you get into the world of biology, evolutionary biology, 
okay? Evolutionists um, such as Richard Dawkins, who's really kind of leading the field. He's probably one of the leading voices today when it comes to this. Um, has written several books about it. I've read some of his books on it. And the, the way he approaches it is very interesting to me. Um, but basically using what, they, what everybody leaning on is something that Charles Darwin wrote, most of you know, in the 1850s called On the Origin of Species, which, by the way, um, Charles Darwin really postulated a theory of how we have evolved, and if you could trace back to maybe a single ancestor, but did not really do a good job or answer the question of how that life came to be in the first place. Now, uh, a guy by the name of Francis Crick, I don't know if you ever heard of his name, uh, Francis Crick, along with a partner of his, James Watson, in the mid-1900s, are actually accredited for discovering DNA, right? DNA, the, the little part within every single cell that has the exact makeup. It is like the playbook for your life, okay? And so uh, Francis Crick, who was a devout, outspoken atheist, did not believe in God at all, Okay? I want you to hear something that he said, and he kind of, can I say this, laments this. This is kind of like a sadness thing. In a book that he wrote called Life Itself in 1981, here's what Francis Crick said. He said, an honest man, so I'm going to be honest, that's what he says, I'm a scientist, armed with all the knowledge available to us now, could only state that in some sense the origin of life appears at the moment to be almost a what? At the moment, this is the answer. We will solve this. This is what he's saying. But unfortunately, at the moment, to an honest man, everything appears to be a miracle. So many are the conditions which would have had to been satisfied to get it going. Like, this is a guy who is trying, he's trying to solve this equation without a God. He says, at the time, it's really hard. Now, again, Richard Dawkins um, he sat down with Ben Stein. I don't know if you ever saw this film or documentary called Expelled in 2008, I think it was. And he sat down and was asked questions about the origin of life. Again, this is the leading voice on evolutionary biology. And his answer was, we don't know. We don't know how it came to be. But he said, when you look at it that with careful investigation of DNA, Here's what he said. He said, what you have is a signature of some kind of designer. This is, what Char- this is what Dawkins said. When you look at DNA, what you have is like, I don't know how else to explain it, but it seems to be the signature of a designer. Now, I want to be fair to Richard Dawkins. He is not purporting that there is a divine designer, a God that exists. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that when you look at Life in a cell, it is so complicated so, that it, it reeks of there's got to be a designer. Now, um, you'd say, well, what did he believe? Well, one of his theories is that alien civilization actually seeded the earth with life a long time ago, and that through evolution, that's how we came to be. There's a lot of challenges to that. We'll talk a little bit about that in week three, okay? But, but for now, I think the life existing in our universe is a massive problem unless there is a creator. Another clue. Clue number four. Clue number four. Okay. Consciousness exists within us. There's consciousness. You are aware 
of what you're doing right now. You're aware of things you believe. You are what, what I would say self-aware. Okay? Now, why does this matter? Well, because if we are nothing more than bits of matter, if we are nothing more than chemicals and synapses firing, if we are nothing more than that, then we should not have an awareness that we are doing that. Again, this I know gets a little confusing, but I want us to just kind of lean into this idea of the mind, of consciousness. A very famous French philosopher had a quote, maybe you've heard this before, I want you to stick it up, Descartes. He said, I think, therefore I am. Have you ever heard that phrase before? I think, therefore, I am. What is he actually saying? What's he appealing to? He's saying that we have to understand that our consciousness is an issue. It's an issue to solve. Because evolutionary biology would say you're just physical. We're just physical. That's all we are. We just evolved from one cell. We've just evolved from bacteria. You're just physical. Now, if that is true, how do we understand the mind? When I say mind, I want you to understand there's a difference between your brain and your mind. There's a difference between the physiological part of you and the psychological part of you. They are not the same. And evolutionary biology would tell you, basically reduce us nothing more than physical machines. We're like computers, okay? Computers do what? Someone programs a computer, and a computer responds to the way it was programmed. It has code, and it responds that way, okay? If you, if you reduce everything down to just the physical, please understand that you and I are computers. It's computers. We do what we're programmed to do. In the world of nature, we call it instinct. Follow your instincts, When a lion sees a gazelle, it doesn't think, I'd like to be friends with that gazelle. It doesn't think anything except lunch. And lion will take out gazelle and will not feel bad about it at all. It's instinct. It's natural. We are different. Let's recognize that. I think you know that. We're different. There's something about the mind that is different than the physical why would I say that? It's because we're the only species on earth, so that we know, that is able to violate evolutionary principles. You and I can choose to do what is not best for our species. We do it all the time. You and I can choose to do things that is not best to preserve our DNA, because that's what evolution does. Is the DNA is what really matters. In fact, as you read maybe Richard uh, Dawkins, he, if you ever read The Blind Watchmaker, the way he talks about DNA, he, he is in awe of DNA. He says DNA is the real thing, your physical body. You're just a carrier to pass it on, and it'll evolve and develop, and it's the DNA. It's not you. But here's the thing. We do things all the time that violate natural selection. We do things all the time that violate those things. And we're the only ones that do it. Now, a book that's on the back of your resource list that I don't necessarily recommend, but I put it on there anyways, is a book by Thomas Nagel, an American philosopher. Uh, He wrote a book called Mind and Cosmos. Now, he's an atheist. That's not why I don't recommend the book. I've read several books by atheists. That's, I I just, it's very heady, and it's just, I don't know, I just think it was a little 
complex the way he wrote it, and he could have maybe written it differently. But, but what's interesting is here he is as an atheist who basically writes a book that he believes neo-Darwinian principles are false. Now, he does not believe necessarily that there is a God that's created it, although his book sure leans heavily in that direction. He does not go there. But here's something he said. I want you to see this quote by Thomas Nagel. He said, if evolutionary biology is a physical theory, as it is generally taken to be, he said, then it cannot account for the appearance of consciousness and other phenomena that are not physically reducible. Okay? Is he saying, he's saying that it just seems like Darwinian principles don't seem to answer for the consciousness. You and I are aware that we're even having this conversation and that we ask these big questions. And it's not just neurons in your physical brain that's doing that. There's something that makes us different from all the rest of nature. What is that? That is consciousness. Now, in the world of faith, you know what we call that? The soul. We call it the soul. We say that more to you than just the physical you. Okay? Now, let's go on to the fifth clue. The last clue. We long for something beyond the physical, or I would say the natural world. We actually long for something beyond the physical world. Or the natural world. What do, what do I mean by that? Um, I think most, if not all of us, would probably admit that there are longings within us where we desire things. Maybe we don't even know why we desire these things, but we do. There's, there's longings, there's desires, there's appetites inside of us that we long for. Listen, some of them are natural. I would argue some of them are supernatural. Okay? So what am I saying? I'm saying that anytime there is a natural desire within us, the reason why that desire exists is because there is something in nature that can actually meet that desire. Okay? Does that make sense? In other words, I'll give you some examples. Um, We desire food. There are a lot of you that desire food right now. You can't even think, can we end this so I can go get lunch? That's how some of you feel right now. I get it. You would not have that desire if there were not that opportunity for that desire to be met in the natural world, right? Go get me some Christian chicken. Oh, wait, they're not open. Never mind. I don't know what we're going to do, right? So, so there is, there's a desire. There's appetites that we have. We have, there's desires. There's things that our body naturally craves, like sleep. So I'm really like, I'm going home to take a nap today. Because why? Because there's something in this natural world that can actually meet that desire or appetite. The same is true with sex, The reason why there's a drive for sex is because there's something in the natural world that can meet that drive. And it's not just physical, it's also emotional. Love. I don't know where love exists in all of this, but here's what I know. All of us, we have a desire to be loved. And we want someone to love. And so when you have desires and appetites, listen, inside of you, the only common answer is that there has to be something in that world to meet that desire. Now, here's, here's what's interesting. Sometimes we experience desires for things that we don't see in the natural. There, one of my favorite um, authors, leaders, thinkers, is a guy by the name of Erwin McManus. In fact, a couple of his books are on the list. And Erwin McManus, I uh, was listening to him kind of talk about this, and I love the analogy. He talked about phantom pain. Have you ever heard of phantom pain? Right? Have you ever known anybody that's, that's had a limb amputated? that sometimes afterwards they'll tell you that they feel pain where that limb used to be. 
There's something inside of them physiologically where they feel pain, but the limb does not exist. And I love that picture because, let's be honest, there are things that we desire, that we all have a longing for, that there is no limb in this natural world for. What am I talking about? How about justice? A lot of people today appealing to justice. Nothing maybe gets you more upset when you see injustice in our world. You say, there needs to be justice in this world. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be racism. It could be sexism. It could be whatever. Uh, it could be classism. It could be whatever. But what is that inside of you? You're longing for something, let's be honest, doesn't exist in our world. Can I ask you a question? When at any time in human history has this world been just? Oh, it hasn't. What are we longing for? Okay, it goes on and on. We want to end global poverty. I would love to see us end global poverty. Can I ask you a question? When has there ever been a time in human history where people have not been hungry? When people have gone without while others have had? When? When has there been? A, we, I, we we're going to sing songs in a couple of months about world peace. Let there be peace on earth. Can I ask you a question? When has there ever existed peace on earth? Oh, it has not existed. You see, I want you to recognize every time you or anyone around you appeals to something like fairness, rightness, justice. Can, can I ask you, what are you appealing to? Because I don't see it in our natural world if this is all there is. What are you appealing to? I, I, I'm asking that simple question. Because this is the problem today, and this is... Why we have such complicated thoughts when it comes to morality. Morality, to me, is a big issue for a naturalist, for somebody who only believes in what we have in this world. Right? Because here's what's interesting. All of us, in a way, we believe there is a version of morality. Yeah, some people, and they'll say, well, you just, just know you don't lie. Well, who said? Where are you getting that from? Where is your idea of morality coming from? This, this is a great question, right? Because we could sit here and argue all day long that my morality is right and yours isn't. But what are you appealing to if we are biological machines and our sole purpose is to keep our DNA alive? What are you appealing to? It's interesting today how many people that don't believe in God but are appealing to something whenever they see women's rights violated. Women's rights. By the way, I'm all for women's rights, just so you know. I think women are equal. Like, I'm totally for that. Can I, can I just tell you something? That's kind of a Western civilization, cultural idea. Like, you can say or go, I don't believe in God, but my gosh, Women, they better, you better pay them the same in dollars. I, I'm with you. But all you have to do is get on an airplane and travel around the world to some eastern countries, like one we just were watching in the news over this past couple months, like Afghanistan. And all of a sudden, you find a whole bunch of other people that really believe that women don't have the same rights as men, and they shouldn't. So I'm asking you, which one's right? Well, that's, of course, ours is right. Well, who's to say yours is right? What are we appealing to? This is a significant Significant issue, if you ask me. Now, a materialist will basically say, we ascribe 
value, even though it does not exist. Value is an illusion. We ascribe value to people and things to preserve the DNA, right? Survival of the fittest, survival of our species. What's interesting is that there have been so many different secular leaders throughout our history that have used secular ideologies in the name of killing millions and millions and millions of people. Millions of people. And so I'm not really sure where we get it, but I know this, that's a clue for me. That it's not just that consciousness exists, but a big clue for me is this idea that we long for something beyond the natural world. It would tell me that maybe you and I were made for something more. Just maybe, maybe. Now what I've seen come out of this is two forms of what I consider intellectual hypocrisy. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna finish right here with this one. Two forms of intellectual, intellectual hypocrisy. I see Christians, many of them today, who be- say they believe in God, but they live as though he doesn't exist. We could call them Christian atheists. Oh yeah, I believe in God. You can pull America. A lot of people, 80, 90% say, I believe in God. But how many people are living as though he exists? How many are living with a base of morals that reflects that? Mm, It's a great question. But there's the other side of this, which is there are a lot of atheists that say they don't believe in God, but then they live as though he exists. Fairness. Justice, what are you appealing to? Now, please hear me, especially if you're an atheist. I'm not saying an atheist is an amoral person. There are some atheists and some people I've known. They're they're probably living more moral lives than some Christians that I know, to be honest with you. Okay? I'm just saying this is what it leaves you with if you come from a purely natural world view. Now, I said I was going to give you five but let me, let me finish by just giving you a real quick sixth clue. And this one's a little bit more personal for me. And my sixth clue would be this, personal experience. When I say personal experience, I'm talking about mine, my personal. Now, I, I don't want for one second to, to say that my personal experience should be a reason for any of you to believe in God. That's what I'm saying. But when, when I look at all the clues and they stack up, there's another one that is really important to me personally. And that is my personal encounters with the supernatural. I don't know how to explain them, guys. I wish I could. I don't, I don't know how to explain them. But I personally have experienced things that to me are not from this natural world. They're supernatural. I'm not talking about being abducted by aliens, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm saying there have been moments where I, I have felt, and it is as real as you are in front of me, what I believe is a very real presence of a supernatural in my life. I felt it. I've experienced miracles. I've seen God do miracles. I know you might not believe in God, but I don't know what else to ascribe it to. But probability and statistics say it should never happen. But I have seen it. I've seen people defy the odds. I've seen things like that in my own personal life. I've had moments where I feel like I've gotten words to speak to other people that I have no idea or would have no way of knowing their situation. But it was exactly what they were wrestling with. I don't know how to answer this. 
other than to say my personal experience stacked up with accumulation of clues that we talked about today, and this is just some of them, have led me to a point where I have faith. Some of you go, well, I can't get there. Well, you'll, you'll probably never get there if that's the way you see it. I need proof. There is no proof. I need proof. There's no proof. But what I have is a lot of evidence. I'm talking about scientific evidence. We're going to talk about it in weeks to come. I've got a lot of evidence that's just mounted for me that has led me to this conclusion that I believe that God exists. And I believe it is the best explanation for all of the challenges and all the things that we see in this life. That's me. And you may not feel that way. You know what? That's great. I'm glad you're here. I'd rather us have this conversation. If you have questions, submit them. That's fine. But, but I know that there are many of you here, and the reason why you're here, maybe some of you watching this, is because there's been something in you. There's something in you that's longing for something beyond this world. And I believe that that something is God. Now, I want to leave you with a final question. All of us. One last question. I'm going to close. This question. If God is real, how does that affect everything I believe. I just want you to wrestle with that question, whether you're someone who's a person of faith or you're saying, I'm a person of science. If God is real, if you're a person of faith, it should affect how you live in everything, what you believe, how you live. If you're someone who is not sure, then your question to ask is, God, are you real? Can we take a moment and pray? If you would just bow your heads and close your eyes. Maybe if you're, if you're not a person of faith, maybe it's just a moment of concentration where you're, you're gonna wrestle with your thoughts in this moment. God, I appeal to you because I believe you exist. And in this moment, God, I pray for those who are full of questions and aren't sure. God, it is my prayer. Lord, they would experience your presence in a personal way the way I have. Listen, as we're praying in this moment, some of you, maybe you're watching this or you're here in the room and you're that skeptic, it's okay. You're that person that's, I've just, I've been flooded with scientific thoughts and I just, I haven't figured out how to get there. For you, the prayer, I would ask you to pray. Maybe you never prayed before. Why would I pray if there's nothing out there? Okay, throw a thought out into the universe, however you wanna see it, I don't care. But if you were to ask this question, God, if you're real, will you show me? There's no more honest question than any of us can ask than that question. God, if you're real, will you show me? And I believe that he will. And God, I pray for those who are asking that question that at some point, maybe over the next several weeks, that God, you will show that you are real. God, I pray for every person who's a part of this community of faith, that God, we would live such a way that we know, yeah, maybe we can't fully prove, but that confidence in us, that God, you are there and we would live in a way that honors you. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. And everybody said, amen. Thanks so much for tuning into this message. I hope that it encouraged you and inspired your faith. If God is doing something in your life, 
would you take a moment and let us know? We want to connect with you, and we want to be able to pray for you. All you have to do is shoot us an email to hello at thex.church, or you can always send us a DM on one of our social media platforms. And if you know somebody that would also be encouraged by this very message, why not take a moment and just share it with them right now? And as always, I want to say thank you to every single person who so generously financially supports this ministry so we can continue to get messages like these out to people all over the world. We believe God is building something special and you're a significant part of it. Until next time, have a great day.